HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Karen Carbon Partners, a food business consultancy that helps clients explore the interconnections among agriculture, food, policy, and people. For more information, visit kknp.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we are broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to talk about Chipotle Mexican Grill, who has recently been dealing with a spate of food poisoning outbreaks since this past summer. Until this time, Chipotle has been seen by many as the darling of the restaurant industry, promoting fresh local ingredients and sustainably raised meat. Chipotle has therefore managed to do the seemingly impossible, make a national fast food chain with more than 1,900 locations feel healthy and wholesome. Their tagline, Food with Integrity, helped the company reach a market valuation of nearly $24 billion. Today we're going to dig into exactly what has been going on with the chain and what are some of the potential repercussions um, from a legal and regulatory standpoint. Joining us today to discuss these issues are two food safety and law experts, Bill Marler and Michael Roberts. Bill is a food poisoning attorney who champions the cause of children and other people sickened by foodborne illness across the U.S. He began litigating foodborne illness, illness cases in 1993 when he represented Brianne Kiner, the most seriously injured survivor of the Jack in the Box E. coli outbreak. And he has also recently filed several cases against Chipotle. And Michael is the founding executive director of the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law, who recently wrote the first major treaties on food law pa- published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, for all those, all of you non-lawyers out there listening today, this means that he literally wrote the book on food law and policy. Michael and Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start with a quick um, rundown of kind of just exactly what's happened in the past um, six months or so with with Chipotle. They've had a tumultuous go of it um, with its first reported their first reported E. coli outbreak in Seattle this past July. 
And according to Susan Burfield in her recent Business Week cover story about the chain, here are some of the events that followed. So in August, 64 people contracted salmonella in Minnesota, and then 234 people contracted norovirus in California. From October through November, 58 people were poisoned with E. coli across nine different states and over 140 people with norovirus in Boston. Um, this totals about 500 people, and these are just the reported cases, as we know um, from food safety experts that many times with any kind of outbreak, the number is often, they estimate 10 times more, um, because these are just like the, the reported cases of people who went to the doctor. So, so Bill, turning to you first, how did this happen, and what's the best explanation in your opinion as to why? Well, I mean, the, each of these outbreaks, in, in many respects, are very different. Um, you know, unlike uh, some of the conspiracy theorists out there, um, you know, there's no uh, overarching bad thing that happened. It ultimately, uh, you know, you can break down the norovirus outbreaks uh, are most likely uh, caused by ill employees working uh, and not using good hand-washing techniques in their preparation of food. Um, the E. coli outbreaks, um, both of well, both of them, the uh, one in July of uh, 2015, which actually public health in Seattle um, didn't report until November. Um, that outbreak was never really determined what food product it was, and then the uh, 58 people sickened by E. coli O26. They've not definitively said what the likely uh, product was. I think originally most people thought it was a perishable item. The fact that the outbreak sort of crept along for a while, um, I think most people who've been paying attention to this uh, you know, start to think that maybe it was a non-perishable item and some cross-contamination in the restaurant. Ultimately, I've never seen six outbreaks of foodborne illness in a uh, any restaurant chain uh, ever uh, in the 22 years of doing this. So I think it's been a pretty big wake-up call for Chipotle. And drawing from your experiences in other cases, um, you know, what, what do you think the, the main reason is that caused them to be in the spotlight for so long? Is it that there were this many cases or is it something, you know, the, the, and causes or is there something kind of more going on here? Uh, Bill, sorry. No, 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 no. That's fine. Um, well, I mean, you know, I, th I think, I think perhaps Chipotle just took their eye off the ball. Um, you know, they were very focused on this food with integrity. Um, you know, organic, local, non-GMO, humanely raised. You know, all potentially laudable ideas, but um, you know, it's it's not the definitive way to have safe food. Um, you know, it it was it was not because they had um, locally sourced product um, it, that caused this outbreak. I think it's just a fundamental uh, lack of focus on food safety that's caused this issue. Okay, um, they've also gotten a lot of attention, just not only for the outbreaks but also their responses to these incidents. So, Michael, I'm wondering, right. um, you know, if how. What, what is your opinion um, to their reaction, the, the, the company's response overall? Well, I, I think that um, it's probably very typical, uh, and, that's, uh, and that's not a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and yet it's also understandable to some extent uh, and, and not to other extent. I think that um, what generally happens, and this has been the history of food safety problems, is that companies are, are – uh, 
you know, in, desire to protect their brand, their reputation, to minimize the problem. Uh, and so uh, it's, uh, that's been a pattern that's been around for a long, long time. Uh, and it just doesn't work very well. Um, you're always better off uh, taking the bitter medicine and making a full disclosure and, and being up front and, and, quite frankly, living up to the descriptor of having integrity. Um, and uh, I don't think that's the only problem in this case, but it certainly hasn't helped their cause. Right. So there is there, there seems to be a kind of maybe typical playbook for how companies should should respond to this, but but Chipotle just kind of didn't follow it. Would you say that's an accurate assessment? Well, it's hard it's hard to tell because I'm not privy to all of the facts. Um, but I do. I mean, I have. Um, if you use uh, the pattern that has been established by other food companies, that is typically what happens, and it seems to be in this case as well. Um, and uh, you know, it's difficult at times because oftentimes the company itself doesn't know. Um, where the causation lies or the reasons for all of the problems. And so they're trying to gather information as quickly as they can as well. Um, and in this case, uh, because as Bill has pointed out, the incident seems so disparate that it probably um, is part of the explanation as well. But it's, uh, uh, it's one of those things where um, you, you really risk lives if you're not moving quickly enough. And so the obligation, I think, is quite, uh, quite significant. So in response to these outbreaks, um, Chipotle has announced some new major food safety initiatives. Uh, Bill, can you, can you tell us a little bit more about what these changes are and what they hope to accomplish? Well, they, as far as we know, um, uh, the, they've hired a consultant um, at IEH Labs to institute a variety of things uh, that include uh, some some requirements uh, for food testing uh, from their supply chain, uh, in a sense, verification. Um, and then um, a program of increasing um, uh, their HACCP plan in, in restaurants so that they, that they are actually doing the things that they should be doing, keeping hot things hot and cold things cold and, you know, making sure that employees are washing hands and that employees are excluded from work. Uh, they do have a sick leave policy, mm-hmm. but that, you know, they need to encourage those people when they are sick to stay at home. Right. Um, you know, many of the things that uh, IEH Labs has suggested and certainly many of the things that uh, the uh, Chipotle management has been talking about over the last couple of months are in many respects um, quite basic. And um, there are things that you know, a company the size of Chipotle with the exposure that they had should have been doing, you know, six months, six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in last week's episode, um, we, we spoke with uh, political journalist Helena Bottomiller-Evich, and, and she discussed um, the case against Stuart Parnell. So for those of you who don't know, he's the CEO, former, former CEO of the Peanut Corporation of America, who got the pretty unprecedented 28-year sentence for his role in the 2008-9 Salmonella outbreak, which sickened more than 700 people and, and killed nine people. Um, Michael, how are cases like these from the past informing actions um, taken by regulatory agencies today? Well, that particular case involving uh, Mr. Parnell was was a, a real change, um, and 
and really, I think, reflected um, that the commitment by the FDA to step up its criminal enforcement, largely under uh, what we refer to as FISMA. FISMA is the Food Safety um, Modernization Act that was passed in 2011. And, um, and it became very clear uh, with the passage of this uh, statute uh, that the government was going to rely more heavily on criminal prosecution as an enforcement tool. Uh, and, you know, there's a whole array of enforcement tools. Uh, they include, uh, now we have mandatory food recall mm-hmm. um, and uh, detention and other um, seizure and market withdrawal and other tools that are that are used by the government. Uh, but the one that, that probably has the most punch, <laughs> at least as, in terms of, um, of uh, officials for co- food companies, uh, is criminal prosecution. And so uh, that particular case, I think, uh, should have raised uh, the awareness of all food companies uh, that this was would be an important uh, precedence, uh, not only in terms of having your food safety plans and your processes in place, but also, uh, and again, in cooperating uh, with the government and in uh, telling the truth and in making sure that you don't delay and obfuscate um, the disclosure of food safety problems. And um, and so that case was an important case. Uh, but the, the criminal prosecution has been a tool that the FDA has long had, uh, just used very, very infrequently. Um, there was a law case back in 1975, the U.S. versus Park, where the, the president, president of a grocery store chain uh, was convicted uh, on for causing adulteration of food. And the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, upheld the trial court's instructions, um, which um, explained to the jury that uh, the defendant, the CEO, didn't even need to have to per- personally participate in the situation that caused the, uh, the uh, uh, adulteration. And so uh, it's, it really is um, an important uh, precedence. And I think that, um, so I would say that what we're seeing now uh, with Bluebell and now with Chipotle is that it shouldn't be that much of a surprise. It still is a change, and it's certainly a trajectory that uh, is different than we've had in the past. But certainly uh, the case that you uh, refer to um, mm-hmm. in Georgia, the Peanut Corporation of America, uh, certainly uh, let, let everybody know that there was uh, a new direction. Uh, just one question. So voluntary or um, a mandatory food recalls weren't required before 2011? No, no. We operated under a voluntary recall system. Um, and, wow. And it, it, what, there were, for years <laughs> and years, that was a, a, a subject of um, fierce debate. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, there, were, there had been hearings and, and lots of discussions and many articles and back and forth written on the subject. Um, oftentimes, uh, it wasn't so much that food companies would not recall their food. In fact, in most cases, they did recall uh, because that was the right thing to do. And, and, and quite frankly, the government had a number of leverage points, including making their lives very miserable in a number of different ways if they didn't recall. However, <laughs> what it did lead to was a lot of delay. Mm-hmm. It, was, it took a lot longer and a lot more negotiation back and forth before you actually had a recall. And sometimes the scope of it wasn't as broad as it needed to be. And so the 2011 uh, FISMA uh, 
implemented mandatory recall for the first time. Although I should note that that only applies to the FDA, which regulates uh, all food except for meat, mostly. Uh, and so you still have voluntary recall that exists under the uh, food, which is meat, under the jurisdiction of the Department of Agriculture. Wow. Um, so, so you touched on, um, you know, Chipotle, the criminal investigation, and 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 Chipotle. Can you tell us a little bit more? And we know that they're recently served with the federal grand jury subpoena. Um, sub so, can you tell us a little bit more exactly what's going on with this as it relates to Chipotle specifically? And and to the best of your ability, Michael, can you kind of gauge the the likelihood that criminal charges will be brought against um, against the company? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> and Bill, yes, if, both of you, please feel free to, to jump in. Bill, do you want to take that I, one first? I, I, you know, I have been following these uh, as, 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 you know, I think people in the food business have been following all these criminal um, investigations, and certainly PCA was, uh, with the 28 years in prison, has certainly um, been a big wake up call for the industry. Um, but the, the absolutely correct that there have been more prosecutions in the last five years than in the last 20 years um, in, involving foodborne illnesses. I was a bit surprised when uh, Chipotle was uh, served with a subpoena um, uh, focused on the Simi Valley norovirus outbreak. But I, I think I've learned a little bit more since the subpoena was originally filed. I, I think that the focus is on um, whether or not um, Chipotle notified county health authorities that they were actually having a norovirus outbreak, and they had 18 ill employees and dozens and dozens of complaints. And so I think the focus is, under California law, uh, they have an obligation to alert public health authorities of a, of a ongoing outbreak. Um, it's an interesting jurisdiction issue about how the uh, uh, U.S. Attorney's Office has jurisdiction over an in-state restaurant, but uh, they're taking the position that they have uh, jurisdiction over an in-state restaurant because the restaurant uh, uses food uh, that comes from other states. So there's, that's the interstate commerce uh, hook to get jurisdiction. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out for Chipotle um, and and what uh, ultimately the grand jury uncovers. Right, and what that could mean for future cases. Yeah, I will say this. I think that it does signify, again, a trajectory um, uh, that's pretty important, and that is that you know prosecutor offices and other public officials um, are are far more interested in food safety outbreaks than I think they have been in the past, where largely this is seen as the province of the FDA. Uh, and, and so however it happens, whatever the circumstances, whatever the particular state or local law would be, uh, I think that we'll see a heightened amount of interest uh, in these types of cases uh, on a criminal level. And um, talking more specifically about, about lawsuits, um, Bill, in your experience, what do you usually see as the determining factor in, in some of these food poisoning lawsuits? And how do you ultimately argue that, that consumer is not, at the end of the day, liable? Well, I mean, most of these cases involve what's known as strict product liability, that, um, that uh, the product was defective, i.e. the burrito or the burrito bowl was defective because it had, you know, E. coli or salmonella or norovirus in it. And so what 
the plaintiff needs to prove is only that they consumed the product and that the product had a pathogen in it that made them sick. Once they prove that, the, it's really the game's over for discussions about, you know, whether you know, uh, Chipotle is a good company or a bad company. The fact is, is if they uh, manufacture, sell a product that's got a contaminant in it, they're, they're, they are liable, period. Interesting. Okay. Oh, Michael, yeah? Did you... Bill, isn't the biggest challenge there uh, proving causation? I guess. I mean, Absolutely. Uh, no, the biggest cause always is that, uh, you know, for, um, you know, for many of the cases that we discussed, uh, you know, the, when you actually have solid numbers, that usually tells you that you have causation on those, that you can prove that they ate at the restaurant, that they had an E. coli or a salmonella illness, that the culture confirmed and accounted by public health. That's, that's a solid, very solid causation case. You've proved causation. Gets a little more speculative uh, if, for one reason or other, uh, you have a little less evidence, and that takes a little bit more work to parse out whether or not it's a a case or not. Interesting. Okay, um, we're going to just take a really quick break right now to hear a word, a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more. Partners is a food business consultancy that helps clients explore the interconnections among agriculture, food, policy, and people. They help coordinate executives, school and government officials, distributors, and farmers think clearly about how food is produced, processed, and distributed, encouraging them to overcome challenges and pursue innovation. Their Good Food is Good Business division supports the healthy development, execution, and operations of food businesses and initiatives in the public and private sectors through strategic sourcing, feasibility analysis, market research, business planning, project management, and evaluation. Their Good People are Good Business division builds leadership and organizational effectiveness through talent and performance management, organizational assessment, executive coaching, recruiting, and employee engagement services. For more than 20 years, Karen Carpen Partners has been integral to the development and execution of food businesses, policies, and partnerships in the U.S. and the U.K. Visit them on the web at kknp.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Bill Marler and Michael Roberts about food safety issues and litigation, focusing on Chipotle's experiences over the past few months. I now want to turn to get a little bit more into what these outbreaks and subsequent lawsuits mean more broadly for the food movement. Um, we've seen um, part of the back, you know, part of the backlash that we've seen is is kind of this mocking of Chipotle's tagline, "Food with Integrity." So um, people seem to be kind of blaming these th- their sourcing and prepping practices as the root cause of these outbreaks. 
Um, Bill, I'm wondering if you, you know, well, I want to hear from both of you, but Bill, maybe you can kick us off and, and let me know. Do, do you think that this seems like a fair, accurate kind of assessment? Um, like, is there commitment to using, for instance, products without GMOs, the root cause of these outbreaks? Um, you know, they, they, they had, their focus was really on marketing and, 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 you know, I certainly don't begrudge their, you know, interest in uh, sustainable and and uh, those sorts of things. But uh, a lot of times, um, consumers um, misinterpret um, these buzzwords for safety. And given the fact that Chipotle had six foodborne illness outbreaks over six months, I think they started to believe their own marketing, that somehow if it was non-GMO and organic and local and happy animals, that somehow magically it uh, would be pathogen-free, and that just simply wasn't the case. Um, I I don't think uh, it's mutually exclusive. I think you can do the things that uh, Chipotle have, have that food with integrity, but I think they need to have safe food with integrity, and I think they need to sort of rethink their focus and focus on food safety. Michael, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree, and I am I am concerned as a result of the broader implications. Um, uh, obviously, um, they're a target because of the hypocrisy that's involved, mm-hmm. um, and and that doesn't uh, that doesn't do anyone any good uh, because it's not only inaccurate; um, it casts cast aspersions on. A lot of folks who want to do things uh, for the right reasons and are interested in local food sources and fresh mm-hmm. food and and quality delivery. So um, that's too bad uh, because I don't. I, I think that, um, that that that's there's certainly um, uh, there's no connection at all between uh, local food and and uh, unsafe food. Um, I will say this: that um, it is a problem in the sense that uh, a lot of our very healthy food uh, from spinach uh, here in California years ago uh, to cantaloupe in, in uh, Colorado not too long ago, um, and where we've got to figure out a way uh, to make our, our fruits and vegetables and other really healthy food uh, more safe. Uh, and that's, that's not an easy endeavor, actually. Um, we're, you know, it used to be that we distributed these kinds of foods uh, on a local basis. And mm-hmm. now we're doing a lot more with them, and we're distributing them more broadly. And, and that's, uh, it, it obviously presents some food safety challenges. Um, can they be overcome? Certainly they can. Um, and it's really not, as Bill has pointed out, it's not that complicated. It's pretty basic. Um, but we've got, to, we've got to focus on it apparently more than we have in the past. Um, but I think um, we certainly can have uh, very healthy food, and it can certainly be very safe at the same time. I mean, I wonder, though, is this just an indication that that food is not meant to be scaled to this level? I don't know if either of you have thoughts on that. Well, yeah, I think certainly that's an argument. Um, I don't know that, that, um, you know, that's an argument that doesn't have a response. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Yeah, I think with the processes in place, um, uh, it can be more safe than it is now. That doesn't necessarily mean that having that broad of a okay. scale uh, doesn't, you know, doesn't present some challenges because I think it does. Uh, but you're just, uh, and one of the concerns uh, that I have actually is that um, 
you know, the, the risk of having unsafe food is not just the risk to consumers, but it's also now, as evidenced in this case, presents a real business risk. Right. And That's a and good, that, very good point. Very good point. Yeah, and, and those risks are oftentimes allocated to those who have the fewer resources. And it may be that uh, we, we see in the future the f- small farmers, for example. Right, I was going um, you know, have high insurance policies just in order to farm mm-hmm. because of the risk involved in producing uh, fruits and vegetables that are, that are that are distributed on a broader basis, and that's um, that's a challenge because the folks who can bear that risk the, the best are the larger operators. And so I think you know we we oftentimes refer to the law of unintended consequences, and it's unfortunate uh, that some of the unintended consequences in a case like this might be borne by those who are trying to do th- uh, the right things for the right reasons. And, and Bill, did you want to weigh in? No, I, I completely agree with Michael. I mean, it, it, one, one of the things we've uh, seen is um, some of the very largest players who mass manufacture food and mass sell food, the big box stores, the uh, agreements, uh, the contracts they have with their supply chain are quite draconian in, in nature and very difficult uh, for small players to, in a sense, play in that market. Um, you know, and I say this based on 22 years of practice, um, the, the number of outbreaks linked to small local agriculture over time uh, is, is minuscule in comparison to mass-produced food. I mean, it's just, in part, it's easier to catch mass-produced food because they poison more people. But, um, you know, local-grown uh, agriculture done well has the you know an opportunity to you know be quite health healthful and safe, and I think we just need to you know pay a lot more attention and make sure that the the unintended consequences, as Michael so aptly said, you know doesn't sort of squash you know um, that kind of innovation. Right, and and speaking of unintended consequences, one of my other questions. So we talked a little bit about kind of how it'll affect producers, um, growers, but in looking at how it kind of affects our general, like the general culture around around food in the U.S., we Chipotle has been a part of this larger movement that that has been you know shifting towards more freshly prepared items on site, handcrafted, handmade, um, that that really kind of reflect and increase interest in building a stronger connection between food and how, how we eat it and how it's prepared. Um, so demonstrating that by preparing things on site, right, for Chipotle. And one of the uh, food safety upgrades that they have that they have announced is this commitment to shifting more of their prep to restaurants, uh, from the restaurants to centralized kitchens a la McDonald's, right? So I, I'm wondering um if uh you know what this really says about kind of the direction that we're moving like does does this shift call into question these preferences for creating a stronger connection between how we we know what food is and how we create it how we prepare it well you know my perspective is i think that's a you know, although Chipotle never asks me for advice, probably should. <laughs> they never do. They, um, they, I agree. You know, they my, my advice would be to, to really rethink that. You know, there's absolutely no question that, you know, the, the possibility of being able to control your environment is better in a centralized kitchen. Right. It also, it's also, if, if you're not paying attention to food safety, it's also a really great way of 
making another mistake and then poisoning even more people. So, so I, I would actually. How how is how is that though? How is how is the potential? Well, you, you think about. Well, I'll give you an example. There was a there was a, a three hundred person salmonella outbreak um, linked to a restaurant that was in L A. and in D C. called Fig and Olive. Mm-hmm. Horribly injured people. They had a centralized kitchen on Long Island that uh, produced a, a number of items, and that's where the contamination occurred. And they shipped it to. Uh, D.C. and to L.A. Now, had they doing those exact same things that they were doing in D.C. and L.A., there may have been an outbreak in one of those cities, but not both. So that's the risk of okay. centralizing your your production. Yeah, right. you, yeah. you run the risk of making a bigger mess if you're not paying attention to details. You can do that. Pay attention to details on a store, a restaurant by restaurant, store by store basis as well. It's just, you know, it's just how you're going to implement those. So, um, I, I, I would probably rethink their idea of centralizing some of their production. I agree with that. I, I don't think it's necessarily the business model that it's a fault here. It's it's the practices. And, yes, I agree. And those can be improved uh, regardless of the business model. Um, it may be the business model is a more uh, an, an easier explanation. Yeah. Well, yeah. I wonder if if training kind of comes into it, right? Uh, if it's more affordable in the in the long run. Um, that's an interesting point, though. Business the, the business model is not at fault. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna have to wrap up in just one minute. But before we do, I I want to end on a note that doesn't leave our listeners absolutely terrified of eating out or <laughs> or eating in general. Um, so not 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 the point today. Um, so Bill, I'm I'm given your myriad food poisoning lawsuits that you've been involved with. What, in your opinion, are some safe safe bets? Things that you you're like nope, you know, eat this, don't worry about it, and then. <laughs> what are some, what are some things that you're like? Nah, I might stay. I might steer clear of those. Well, you know, I, I was at, I was asked that once many many years ago. Uh, you know, you know what what do you eat? And I said uh, uh, pizza and scotch. And uh, then there was an <laughs> equal outbreak linked to pizza. Oh so, no! <laughs> so then I guess I'm just down to scotch. You know, the, you know. I think in many respects um, we can't be paranoid. Um, and uh, but what I try to do and what I you know, in my family, um, uh, when we eat at home, uh, you know, it's it's all about keeping hot things hot and cold things cold, and using good hand washing techniques and and uh, making sure you don't cross contaminate things. It's a little more difficult when you're relying and trusting in a, a restaurant environment, but there are a lot of things that consumers can do now. Social media, Yelp. Um, uh, Public health departments have online a lot of health inspection reports. So you can be a much more aware consumer. You just have to do a little bit more work. Okay, great. I think we're going to have to leave it there today. Um, thank you both so much to, to our guests, Bill Marler and Michael Roberts, for joining us today. Our sh- yeah, thank fun. you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Um, our show is produced by both Kim and myself, and our wonderful intern is Austin Brynarski. Show music is by Tim Archer, and I want to thank our sponsors as well as our show engineer, Liz Smith. The show is available on Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher. You can also find us at t- on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you so much for listening. 
for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.